Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. I greatly enjoyed talking with Lindsay because so far, we've often focused on the farmer's perspective on silver pasture, how to establish trees and how to manage them, for example. This time, we take a different angle and look at trees from the animal's perspective. Through the interview, we get a systematic and fact-driven account of the multiple ways in which livestock benefit from trees in their environment. Well, I was expecting some of the benefits, such as shelter or fodder, but I was amazed at hearing some of the facts Lindsay shares with us and the extent to which trees can have a positive impact, including on the social interactions within the herd. Enjoy the interview. Welcome, Lindsay, to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. And as an introduction, uh, could you tell us who you are and how you got into agroforestry? Yes, well, uh, my name's Lindsay Wistance. I'm a senior researcher at the Organic Research Centre. And I got into agroforestry really because of the benefits that trees bring to livestock. Of course, trees are very important in their own right um, and on a private and global citizen level, if you like, uh, trees play a really fundamental role in global health. But in professional terms, really my focus is how trees can bring real benefits to the livestock's landscape. And um, how about your, your career? And did you always work researching on agroforestry or what's your background? No, well, originally I I actually left school without uh, any higher education. I all I wanted to do was really was milk cows. Uh, I I wanted to be a farmer initially, and I spent a few years working mostly with dairy cattle, but also some sheep work and some pig work, and became actually increasingly frustrated with the focus on production because my real interest then and now is the welfare of the animals that we farm. I'm very happy, I'm okay that we farm them, but I really believe that we should give them a life worth living. Uh, and so I went back really to education as a mature student um, and worked through doing my higher education degree, PhD, with the aim to understand livestock better. So really my main focus is behaviour and welfare of livestock. So I worked for a few years uh, around different research centres around Europe and I've now been working at the Organic Research Centre for five years and this is really where my interest and ability to research agroforestry or silvipasture in particular uh, has really kicked off because ORC had an established agroforestry program already going uh, and I could just slot into it with the livestock interests. Uh, I, I actually find it 
extremely fulfilling. I believe, I know that livestock have a relationship with the natural world, independent of humans. And I think if we are to give them a life worth living, then we should be giving them diverse landscapes in which they can choose what they want and when they want it. And trees, really more than any other uh, plants, of course other plants are important, but really it's the trees that bring a huge variety of, of benefits to the livestock in the, in the form of food, medicine, shade, shelter, even social benefits, um, including uh, improving the relationship between humans and animals. So this is why I'm really fascinated and interested to to research this aspect of livestock welfare. And uh, that was a great overview of a lot of the themes uh, I want to discuss with you today. But before we delve into them, maybe you can tell us a bit more about your work with the ORC. How does it function and what kind of organization it is? Yes, well, uh, the Organic Research Centre is a charity. We work predominantly with organic systems, but not exclusively. So uh, as a group, we try to and want to work with any farmer or stakeholder within the food production industry that is interested in... We work across systems, so we have crop, we have livestock, we have agroforestry, we look at economic um, and social changes... And sometimes we work with a combination of these things because, of course, when you have regenerative and sustainable systems, it often means that they're mixed systems. So understanding each of these aspects in different contexts can be important. So an example might be uh, an arable farmer who wants to bring in grass lays into his system and then brings in sheep to graze that system and understanding how these work together. From my point of view, um, of course, animals are, the research is, can be incredibly diverse. So I've just finished a project, a four-year project, looking at how we can feed pigs and poultry with 100% organic and regional feed across Europe. We found certainly some solutions, but that's a very difficult and much bigger topic than one project. But we certainly made some headway with that. Um, another project that I worked on, also a four-year European project, was looking at the sustainability of sheep and goat industries across Europe and how different aspects of farming sheep and goats can be made more resilient and more sustainable in a changing climate and in a changing economic world. So these can be really quite different. And a further project that ORC is engaged with is um, extensive dairy systems. So finding ways that cows can produce milk from grass. And yet another interest uh, that we've been looking at is how to keep dairy calves with their mothers in dairy systems. So it can be really quite diverse. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, a lot of these um, 
research project seems to go beyond agroforestry. So then agroforestry is only one of the of the toolkit in the toolkit that you have to tackle this more sustainable approach to food. Um, and it will be interesting to see exactly, you know, how where you see the the role of trees and and what were the the opportunities for trees and and all the different solutions you brought forward uh, in your research. Yeah, sure. Um, I think this is this is one of the exciting things. I mean, as I say, you know, the animal for me is central in what I do, um, but trees play a, an important role in offering good welfare, high welfare systems. And that's for all livestock. You know, we know that um, free range poultry will use the landscape more when they have cover. So it isn't just, we're not just talking about cows and sheep here. We're talking about all livestock and also pigs. In fact, many of our livestock originally are woodland or peripheral woodland creatures. So they, if you like, they've inherited this relationship with trees and it, it really behoves us to offer them that <laughs> relationship again so that they can interact as they naturally would. Sure. And maybe, you know, that's the first thing I wanted us to do together um, is really for once take the perspective of the livestock. Uh, here on the show, we've talked about silver pasture a few times and we often do so from a practical farming approach, taking uh, the angle of the farmer and how to manage and all these uh, practical and economical um, aspects. But I think for once, it's really interesting to really try and, and see things from the livestock's perspective and understand how trees might affect uh, their behavior. And um, yeah, maybe starting with um, some of you know the obvious things, which is uh, protecting them from extreme weather events or from heat. Um, maybe we can have a bit of a overview then of these different ways in which they benefit from trees. Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, I mean, the animals, as I say, are central to me. So the, the way I look at trees is from their point of view, first and foremost. Um, and if we think about how the trees buffer the landscape, then we get an idea of how the trees also buffer the livestock. So, for example, we're becoming much more um, at risk of hot summers. And I don't know what it was like for you in, in the summer of 2018, but here in the UK, we had a very hot and very dry summer. And once the farmers had cut the grass for silage or hay that first time, there was no regrowth. The fields were brown. And really, you could see very quick, very clearly how the trees, the canopy, enabled the grass to remain green. So you've got a protection from the solar radiation, but also protection from, um, or a maintenance, if you like, of the water. So the evapotranspiration rates, holding that moisture lower to the ground. And then we've got the benefit that trees bring, for example, in wet climate so the root system holding and managing the water and taking it away from the surface and there's an example of an agroforestry system in Ireland where the ground is wet an established agroforestry system ended up extending the grazing system by an average of 15 weeks every year 
most of that in the autumn. And that's a really substantial increase in enabling the animals to stay outdoors um, and to graze for much longer every year. And then if we think about the winter time, we know that even when trees have lost their leaves, the ground temperature under a tree canopy can be up to six degrees warmer. So this is not only providing animals with an an easier place to find food for grazing, but it's also offering them a warmer place to lie down when they're outwintered. Six degrees is a substantial increase in temperature when when you're looking for a comfortable place to lie down. How can we uh, explain such a big difference in temperature uh, even when they've lost the leaves? I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell you. It, um, it's It's been measured. I, I mean, I would, of course, say that there there must be this is up to six degrees, I should say, mm. because if if it's a single tree in a very exposed situation, you've got high winds, then you're not going to be finding those increases in temperature. So animals are, are fairly resilient, of course, and if they're acclimatized, they can tolerate better uh, cold weather. If they have a good winter coat, if they have good body condition, if all of these things are met, then animals can be relatively tolerant. But it's still important for us to understand what these environments are doing for them in welfare terms. So if we, for example, take a beef animal that is healthy and has a good winter coat, then it will have a lower critical temperature of around zero degrees centigrade. So below that point, for every one degree below that animal's lower critical temperature, it will need a 2% increase in feed to maintain its growth or its body maintenance. And if we then take a scenario where we've got an air temperature of plus two degrees and we add in a 24 kilometer an hour wind, it's a cold day, the effective temperature becomes minus seven. So for this animal, it's already needing 14% extra feed. Now this, this is for an animal that's dry. If we then add rain into the mix, so it's a cold and windy day and it's raining, it's, upper, it's lower critical temperature, shoots up to 15 degrees centigrade. So if we add 7 and 15, that makes 23 degrees below its lower critical temperature, which is now 46% extra food for that animal in those conditions. Now, you know, we could say, okay, we can compensate that animal. We've got plenty of grass. We've made plenty of hay or plenty of silage this year. So we can give them that extra feed. But let's remind ourselves that the animal's first choice would be to look for shelter. It's not to go and food, go and eat more. They would naturally go and look for shelter. And that's indeed what they do. So we might be able to maintain production, but we've done nothing for animal welfare in that scenario. So that's on the cold side of things. If we then think about the what happens in hot weather 
when it's way too hot and and I should actually say as important as cold stress can be actually heat stress is is of much more critical importance here and really shade from trees is probably the most important thing they can do across the globe there are lots of things going on when an animal suffers from heat stress first of all they naturally seek shade and if that shade is not available then they start to suffer heat stress and then what happens is that they begin to shut down non-vital systems in order to move blood out to the skin to increase cooling and, and help maintain core body temperature. So then what happens when you move blood away from these non-vital systems, if we take the reproductive system as an example, you have negative effects on fertility, so your animals are not getting pregnant, you have negative effects on embryo growth and development. And these things translate into smaller babies being born. And there's some research that's been done on dairy calves where the cow has suffered from heat stress during late lactation. And they have found that the cow has poorer quality colostrum. So there's lower immunoglobulin G levels in the colostrum. The calf is smaller. And if it's a heifer, they've recorded that her milk levels are affected for her first two lactations. So this is really just for a small amount of time when the mother has been heat stressed in late gestation. These are really big effects. The other non-vital system is the digestive system. And up to 50% of the blood can be redirected from the digestive system and out to, out to the skin. And what happens here is that the removal of that blood stops the membrane um, being impermeable. So the gut membrane becomes permeable and that allows things in the gut to pass through into the bloodstream. And we're talking mycotoxins and endotoxins, things that should not be in the blood. Then what happens is that you get an inflammation cascade. So unsurprisingly, research has measured that dairy cows are more likely to have mastitis problems when they don't have access to shade. And these are incredibly significant. In America, they've, they've worked out in terms of dollars how much heat stress costs their industry on an annual basis. For dairy cows, it's $900 million every year. When you think of the cow is losing production, she's diseased and needs treating, she's not in calf and therefore they lose the cow, these are all big things happening. And, and in the beef industry, they've calculated it to be $400 million every year. These are really, really substantial production losses, all based on poor welfare. All because the animals don't have access to 
good shade. Wow, this is um, really quality information. And thank you so much because as a future, um, you know, cow farmer, I don't know how you say in English, but uh, already it's so, so useful to, to understand in so, you know, so much detail. Um, but just to clarify, when we're talking about heat stress, uh, from what temperature onwards uh, are, we, are we talking about severe effects? Well, again, this is, this is a bit of a movable feast. It depends really what... Uh, it's different for each species. It can be different within species. So coat colour, yield status body shape, size, these can all have an effect. Um, food can have an effect. So if they're being fed on high energy feeds, that also creates more heat. For dairy cows, at least, there's evidence that they are beginning to suffer from heat stress at 18 degrees centigrade. But I should I should also qualify this really and say that with mild heat stress, animals can recover and they typically recover during cooler periods of the day. So, for example, at night time. But models forecasting climate change suggest that we will be losing that benefit over time. So as the as the earth warms up it's unlikely to lose that type of heat during the night time. So the cows and other livestock will then not be able to benefit from that. And I think sheep also, the changes with sheep can be much more dramatic, if you like, where they have a full fleece and can withstand the colder weather, for example assuming that they're clean and that they're healthy, then when we shear them, their lower critical temperature shoots up, in fact, to 28 degrees centigrade. It's really very high. Now, luckily for them, the fleece starts to grow back very quickly. So that vulnerable period for them is quite short. But in the UK, we start shearing our sheep in May, where the average temperature is only around 16 degrees. So they are 12 degrees below their lower critical temperature for several days. Um, and we are increasingly experiencing bad weather in May. So we'll have storms uh, and cold winds. So this is certainly something to think about for them. I actually, I genuinely think that, of course, food is important, but if we offer the livestock places where they can shelter themselves in a meaningful way, so there, there are enough trees, there is enough hedgerow or shelter belt available for them to go and, and utilise it, then um, we're doing the best we can for them. Yeah, well, I think... Um... Hopefully we'll come back to this idea of, you know, how many is enough and, and get a bit more uh, idea of that. But just continuing our overview, um, I think it's pretty clear how beneficial trees are uh, in terms of buffering these extremes. How about in terms of uh, nutrition? I mean, tree fodder is a big topic uh, when it comes to ruminants. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering, 
um, what you can tell us about that. Yes, well, it's worth remembering that, as I said earlier, uh, animals have this natural relationship with trees and not just in terms of accessing them for shade and shelter. Actually, um, trees as browse is part of all of our livestock's natural diet. If we think for cattle, over a whole year, the percent um, of browse is around 12% across that year. For sheep, it's around 20%. And for goats, it's around 60%. So when they have access to browse, they will naturally do so. And of course, this percentage can increase at certain times. So if we have drought or dry periods, or for example, early spring growth that's highly palatable, then that intake can increase quite dramatically. So cattle can quite easily uh, browse up to 55.5% of their diet uh, without any negative effects. Although they are very well um, adapted to getting energy from grass, actually feeding on browse is, is not a problem for them. They can digest it very well. So in terms of nutritional content, there have been a few bits of research across the world and generally the findings are that across the board, nutritional content can be compared to grasses in the same environment. So generally speaking, they are comparable to grasses. Of course, they don't grow at the same rate. So we have to manage intake and we have to manage browse much more carefully from the trees. What you certainly don't want to be doing is allowing more than 50% defoliation because then you'll be stressing the tree and, and um, perhaps affecting its regrowth. There are certainly some trees that are better, uh, very good in nutritional terms. And some research was done in the Netherlands in 2016, looking at protein content in, in different leaf species and comparing that to alfalfa and ryegrass. Uh, they found that, for example, ash and lime compare very well but the absolute outstanding tree was mulberry. So if any farmers live in a region where mulberry grows very well, then they have a very, very good crop indeed uh, in terms of protein. And one of the other things I wanted to mention about protein content is that largely our grass-based um, foods, certainly grasses, don't have any tannins <clears throat> and we know that aside from the health benefits condensed tannins hold on to the protein it passes through the rumen and then it gets degraded in the um, abomasum effectively delivering high quality rumen bypass protein to the small intestine so this is something that's really attractive and on top of that, we also know that the condensed tannins also help to manage methane levels. 
So if we compare the amount of methane that's produced off willow with that produced from lucerne, well, the willow produces less than half than the lucerne does. So really having some tannins in the diet can be very beneficial. And I, I should say generally the recommended is around 4% of dry matter intake and certainly not more than 5% of dry matter intake on a daily basis. Because, of course, we have to remind ourselves that, that tannins are the plant's defence against predation. <laughs> it's supposed to be an anti-nutritional factor. <laughs> but, yes, in small quantities, it can have these benefits. And I think the final thing that's really notice, notable about trees in terms of nutrition is the trace elements, so the mineral content that they can provide. And we did some work at ORC around four or five years ago where we looked at the mineral content of a few species of tree. So that included um, older goat willow, ash and elm. Now we're currently having problems with ash and elm, um, both trees, which is very unfortunate because these are both very good traditional tree fodder trees, certainly in the UK. And, and what we found was that they are very good sources across the board, very good sources of minerals, but some trees are particularly good sources of certain minerals so for example we found with the the um, osier willow the salix viminalis we found that to be very good in terms of zinc we found the goat willow to be good for calcium and phosphorus and a, in a quite a useful two to one ratio for these minerals and we also found that within this piece of research, we were really looking at nutritional content when it was fed as tree hay. So the leaves were harvested in June, in the summer, and then they were fed in March the following year. And they were analysed at both points. And what we found was that when they were fed, the mineral content was much higher across all minerals. So both macro and micro minerals, the content had increased. And this makes us think that, that tree leaves actually might be a good and sustainable source for uh, mineral feeding if, if we can manage it or perhaps make it into some kind of production, meaningful production. So these are really the um, key points to take from tree fodder is that generally across the board, they are at least comparable to grasses. They offer a good protein supplement and they offer a good mineral supplement generally. What we've also learned more recently is that you 
if you're interested in the mineral content, apart from a few trees which seem to have high levels, for example, of zinc uh, in the osier willow, that it can soil content can reflect content in the trees. So I've been learning about this from bioremediation research where some trees, as you may know, are, are being used to help with pollution. So they've done a lot of research on some trees. And there are three strategies, if you like. So you have accumulator trees. So it doesn't matter how much of a mineral is present in the soil. It will accumulate this above ground. So you will always find this mineral to be high in that particular species. So this, for example, is what's happening with zinc in the osier willow. Then you'll find indicator trees. So they reflect what's in the soil. So it's very hard for us to say across the board, oak has high selenium. It does on the farm we measured it on in Berkshire, but it didn't in Wales. So that's an indicator species. And then you have excluder strategy as well. So it will actively prevent a mineral from being represented above ground in the plant, if you like. Um, and so we're learning all the time. And really, it's unavoidable to... You, you have to have some intimate knowledge of your own landscape, if you like, to know to know what you're offering your animals if if this is of interest to you. And I think the other important thing to say is it's yes, it's useful and important to know what nutritional content there is, but it's also important to know what the animals like to eat. So understanding palatability and understanding motivation to eat certain trees is key. Now there's not been that much work done on this that but there was some research done in Scotland which showed that um, in a free setting that aspen and willow were very high in palatability as were ash and rowan. So in the middle were hazel, oak, scots pine, holly, birch and hawthorn, but right at the bottom, beech and alder. So alder has very low palatability. And um, I suppose we don't understand why. Alder is a very interesting tree for other reasons. It works well on wet ground. It's a nitrogen fixer. So it's of interest, certainly in farming systems. But the alder tree typically doesn't even need to be protected against wild deer. It really is a very <laughs> unpalatable tree in, in general terms. And yet its nutritional content is highly comparable to other trees. So we don't really know what's going on with this tree. That said, we do also know that palatability levels can go up and down depending on the health status of the animal. 
So, for example, there's been some research done on sheep that have a, a heavy worm burden. And if they are offered plants that have a high condensed tannin content, they will shift their preference to the high condensed tannin plants. And that research has shown that they can reduce their worm burden by 50% doing this. But they don't continue to eat the high condensed tannin plants because these are bitter, you know, so they're, they're changing their food preferences um, in order to rebalance their health status, if you like. This is actually something that I wanted to ask you about. So we're on topic um, about this anti-parasitic effect of tannins. And uh, so the, the research seems to show that it is effective in, in controlling some types of parasites. Yes, yes, it is. Um, it's shown to be effective on um, Ascaris in pigs. The general worms, parasites for ruminants, it's, it's basically effective for, for most. Um, less so for homuncus, things like that, but actually copper can work very well on homuncus. But yes, in terms of, of generic gastrointestinal parasites, condensed tannins have a beneficial effect. Uh, and they, they do this by inhibiting the larvae from maturing. So they prevent the maturing of the larvae. And for those that do become mature, they tend to be smaller in size than, if you like, healthy larvae <laughs> becoming adults. And, and size really matters in larvae because size really predicts how many eggs they lay. So in effect, you've got a double whammy here. You've got, you've got larvae being prevented from becoming adults. So the cycle is broken. And then you've got smaller adults producing fewer eggs for the next generation. So it actually really works very well. And, and because it's a mechanical effect, there's absolutely no evidence that um, the worms, the parasites, have any defence against the tannins. So it's actually a, a, a pretty effective long-term um, strategy, if you like, to, to utilise condensed tannins in this way. And of course, then animals are naturally seeking them out when they have this option. And the benefit of that is that the animals can seek it out when they need it, not when we have woken up to the fact that they need it. <laughs> so they're doing it in their own time, in real time, if you like. And it also then means that we're not having to give them chemicals we're not having to use chemical remediation when these natural remedies are available to them. Yeah, it's it's really interesting um, to see all those all those benefits from the nu nutritional aspect and the tannin aspect. But the other kind of obvious one uh, is also that in these times where everything is drying up so early in the season, just having access to green leaves uh, in August, for example, is of a huge benefit. 
Uh, yes, it can be. And it can be of benefit in in several ways, really. When you have a a dry season, for example, some countries, certainly Mediterranean countries and some areas in New Zealand and Australia, all having dry seasons, then yes, the only green that is available is tree fodder. And in fact, in some places in New Zealand, they've adopted tree fodder really as a a crisis management, if you like, where they planted lots of uh, willow and poplar as a landscape management. So they were planting the trees to, to help keep soil in place. And then they were finding that these trees were also exceptionally good as fodder in the dry season. So they will cut them fresh and just let them drop. What they find is that they can maintain animal condition. So the animals in these scenarios, they might not be growing, but they can at least maintain condition where animals are losing condition on drought pasture in the same scenario. Now, of course, let's remind ourselves that they are only offering two species of tree, which is willow and poplar. So that's not necessarily a... um, let's say, a fulfilled diet, (laughs) Um, but it's certainly helping them in those drought conditions. And uh, there's also been some research done on lambs. So lambs born in these Mediterranean-style conditions where they've got very little green grass, they're also very susceptible to white muscle disease because the vitamin E is in very poor supply. So when they're coming off milk, when they're being weaned, they are increasingly susceptible to white muscle disease. And but there are lots of shrubs in this environment with with green and therefore high vitamin E. And some researchers did some uh, some trials with lambs where they actually made some of the lambs deliberately deficient in vitamin E. And they offered them two feeds, one which was low in vitamin E and one which was unpalatable, but high in vitamin E. And they found that the lambs that were deficient switched their preference to the feed that was unpalatable, but high in vitamin E. And they found that the lambs were doing this before they could record any differences in health status. They knew they'd made them deficient, but but nothing was measurable at that point when the lambs switched their feeding preferences. And once they'd regained balance in the vitamin E, then they switched back to the more palatable feed. So I suppose it, it indicates an awareness of nutritional status. And it also indicates that if animals have access to a variety of feedstuffs, then they can learn and look for those feedstuffs that have the nutritional content that they need when they need it. I do want to make the point that although we've certainly seen evidence of animals selecting the food and the nutrition that they need at at given times, I think it's still important to underline that it can go wrong. Animals can select foods that are 
poisonous. You know, they might have nutritional status, but they're eating too much, for example. So I don't want to give the impression that that an, all animals are all-knowing because just like humans, they can get it wrong. Of course they can. And if the landscape is imbalanced in terms of diversity, they may be selecting plants that are not healthy in the quantities that they may be choosing to eat them. And I, I really want to make that point because, you know, there are plenty of farmers who have experienced livestock being poisoned by eating the wrong thing in the wrong amounts. We have quite a debate here in the UK about ivy, where it has it, it has a tradition as a feedstuff. And here, uh, certainly anecdotally, farmers will say that if you have a sick sheep, if it doesn't eat a little bit of ivy, then it doesn't want to live. So it has that reputation. But then we also have other farmers that have had animals die because they've eaten ivy. So it, we need to know much more about that as a plant and, and its nutritional content and what else it's containing. So that's really just a caveat, you know, that <laughs> animals, uh, they know a lot in if they have the ability to learn, but they don't know everything like humans. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for this precision yeah it's it's good to always nuance these things and it's it's nice to think that animals are this perfect nutritional intelligence but it's i think it's a useful reminder that, that you gave us uh, another fascinating point that you mentioned a bit earlier on in the introduction was how trees can actually uh, influence the social behavior of animals could you tell us a bit more about that yes i, I was really interested when I first learned about this because it didn't seem immediately obvious that it would have this benefit. But some research has in fact shown that animals that are kept in a agroforestry, in a silvopasture setting, have better social relationships within the herd. And some work that was done with cattle for example, has shown that if they're out on open pasture, then the positive social licking part of their social interactions is around 42% of all of their behaviour towards each other. But within a silvopasture setting, this shoots up to nearly 80%. And this is a really positive behaviour. It helps with social cohesion. It helps maintain hierarchy and dominance levels without the animals resorting to aggression. What research has also shown is that this better relationship transfers to humans as well. So the relationship between humans and livestock is also improved in this scenario. And it's not really clear why this should be, but they think that at least having something physical for the animals to hide behind uh, enables them to show less fear or feel less fear towards, towards their human handlers. And this then helps the human-animal relationship when they are being handled. And 
I was listening to an Irish farmer saying, in fact, just this thing, when he started silvopasture with his cattle, he now has an established silvopasture system. And he used to be able to walk among his beef cattle. They weren't certainly weren't scared of him, but he would have to be very careful walking up to them and may not be able to touch them. Now he can walk right up to them and just scratch them in a silvopasture setting. He's He said it's absolutely the trees that have improved his relationship with the animals. And we do know with social licking, um, to return to that point, uh, it has a very beneficial effect, not just in terms of dominance hierarchy, but there's research evidence that shows that the heart rate of the animal that is being licked goes down. So it's a it's a real pacifying effect it has on the animals. And in fact, the other um, component, the other benefit that trees bring to livestock is their ability to scratch and rub. So body maintenance behavior. And research has also shown that when an animal is rubbing, their heart rate goes down. So socially and stress in stress terms, these are really beneficial effects of, of having trees in the landscape. Aside from, of course, from the physiological benefits of being able to rub. So if we think of skin as a frontline defence against disease, then it's hardly surprising that these animals are spending part of every single day managing the health of their skin and their coat. And of course, they do this through rubbing. So by being able to rub different body parts, they can get rid of dead hair, dead skin, external parasites, seeds that can penetrate the skin. All of these things can be knocked away. And also by knocking the dust out of the coat, this can all help with temperature regulation. So that then has further benefits on the on the general well-being of the animal. And, it, and if we think about incorporating trees at different angles, then they can access most body parts in this way. So overall, trees contribute to making a more interesting environment for livestock in every way, having more diverse sources of food, having a different textures and you know different temperatures and microclimates to explore um a lot like us the the feeling of you know walking in a uh, interesting kind of semi woodland with a bit of light and i mean at least that's my experience uh sometimes more enjoyable and more interesting than walking in a empty open space but it's so interesting that you're able to actually uh demonstrate this to us and, and illustrate it with so many different examples and so much scientific research. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's genuinely a fascinating subject. And I, and I think if we, if we understand the animal, then we understand the environment that they can and should be living in. Um, and there's also evidence, of course, that if you put animals in a silvopasture setting, they use that environment more evenly. Now, of course, we're talking sufficient access we're not talking about a single tree in a field where all of the animals are overcrowded to 
to try to gain access to shade, for example. So in that scenario, you're risking animals staying in one area for too long, death of vegetation, soil compaction, uh, maybe weed growth during recovery of that land, and also risking disease of livestock because they're standing too close together and maybe even perversely overheating because they're not able to lose body heat when they're standing all very close together. What we find in a silvopasture setting is that they generally maintain behaviour patterns. So they continue to feed and continue to produce what we're asking them to. But they also utilise that landscape more evenly. And the knock-on benefit of that is that they're depositing, recycling nutrients more evenly across that landscape. So it, yeah, I mean, I would say largely, if people are happy managing trees, then it's certainly a win-win for the animals living within this environment. And, you know, also bearing in mind, of course, that if we want the animals to browse, then we have to think about their browse heights. So it has to, it has to be growing at a meaningful height for them to access these feeds. So for sheep, for example, it will be around 1.2 metres. For cows, it's around two metres, maximum heights, this is. Uh, and if anyone has goats, well, then there is no limit. There's no meaningful height for goats because they're so agile. They can pretty much climb trees if they want to. Um, and And then if we don't want to, or if we, on top of that, want to offer tree fodder as tree hay well then we can harvest that um, and dry it and feed it to them in the winter time i think by now we have a pretty good understanding of the numerous benefits um, that livestock retrieve from being surrounded by trees but i'm wondering and i'm sure our listeners are as well what those uh silver pastoral systems might look like in practice or you know beyond silver pastoral even Uh, thinking in relation to pigs or um, or poultry as well. Um, to start things off, you were talking before of uh, tree cover. Do you have an, a number in terms of percentage of what's a, a meaningful tree cover? Um, what are we talking about uh, to, to really get those benefits you were just mentioning? Well, if we consider tree cover from a livestock point of view, then it's really having sufficient access for the animals to all use the cover in a meaningful way without overcrowding or without damaging that landscape. So ideally you would have sufficient room for them to be moving around in that landscape without, um, as I say, damaging it, but also being able to choose between different environments so there might be some more dense less dense areas and open areas in between if we think of it in landscape terms then we have to consider what we're trying to achieve with that landscape so if we have grasses we have to know what grasses are there and how much shade they tolerate and still be productive We tend to underestimate their ability to tolerate shade. 
most of our grasses can at least tolerate 50% shade without um, loss of production. And I came across a piece of research that showed that protein levels were higher when shade was higher. Um, I've only come across it once, so I, I don't know how robust that piece of research was. But it's certainly interesting if we're trying to produce grain, for example, for human consumption, let's say, uh, and the protein content is higher, then that, that makes it a more valuable resource, even perhaps if the if the yield is, is slightly lower. So that might be a, a reasonable trade-off. And we also have to consider, if we're thinking about pasture, we have to consider canopy density. So maybe selecting trees. In fact, it goes across the board for agroforestry altogether. We have to think about what we're trying to produce on the ground and how those trees interact. So trees with a later canopy growth and a less dense growth will enable us to farm vertically and maintain production levels better at the ground level. That said, we can manage canopy height so we can we can clean up the canopy and, and, and have it higher so there's more light coming down to the ground. And we're still getting the benefit, if there are sufficient trees in that landscape, we're still getting the benefits of, um, perversely in summer, an increased airflow and higher evapotranspiration rates. So they're also helping to manage both grass growth and more comfortable conditions for the for the livestock when we think of design for the livestock we can have several different designs if you, if you like we can think about the traditional wood pasture which is permanent pasture and you have trees spread out in that landscape in a if you like in a random way there can be natural regeneration in this process. So the trees are interacting with the birds. The birds are hiding acorns, for example, from the oak tree in some shrubbery. And this is all just a natural process. So there's very little control over where trees are planted in this scenario. But here in the UK, it was a very traditional system. Uh, and some of these systems are now being regenerated um, actively managed again. In modern systems, we might want to think about clusters of trees. And in fact, we have a piece of research that we're currently engaging with. We have eight farmers uh, in the south of England, and we have three different silvopasture designs that these farmers are trialling and we're monitoring. So they've just planted them. Uh, and in this piece of research some of the farmers are trialing clusters of trees so mimic mimicking the old wood pasture system closely and then we have two linear designs so um, more like a hedgerow type and the third one is more like a shelter belt type so longer lines more regimented easier access for machinery 
perhaps more suited for changing use of lands. So if you're putting in lay grasses um, and reseeding regularly, then the more uncontrolled design, if you like, is is less suitable in this scenario. So these farmers, all livestock farmers, are trialling these different systems and we'll be monitoring and measuring them as we go through the next 12 years. But what we expect to find with the linear systems, you do tend to limit um, access to shade and shelter because, of course, the sun is changing as it moves round. So what you need to consider with these systems Although they might be easier to manage for the farmer, they will have their drawbacks for the livestock. And then you really need to think about um, how they're positioned in terms of the prevailing wind, for example. So you want them to be perpendicular to the prevailing wind. Otherwise, you risk creating wind tunnels. And you really want them to be either side of the landscape that you're offering the livestock so they can at least offer optimum shelter and optimum shade for more of the day than they otherwise would have with a single line. The benefits of having these shelter belts, of course, is that it's easier to browse from because they tend to go down to ground level, where if you've got trees... Uh, they can access what they can up to the browse line and then they have to wait for regrowth. So these are all real considerations that you manage with your livestock, but you also manage with the type of farming that that you wish to carry out. Yeah, it's really good um, points that you're making actually in in terms of of designing it. And... um, I'm wondering in terms of, uh, we talked about fodder beforehand, in terms of harvesting fodder, for me, that's one of the main uh, difficulties when we come to tree fodder is how you give access to the animals, because sometimes uh, the labor involved in in pruning trees and then feeding it to the animals and then disposing of the branches is huge. But on the other hand, it's not always easy to uh, synchronize the needs of the pasture and, you know, giving access to trees and, and managing the whole um uh, you know, herd. And of course, you don't have all the answers to this, but I'm wondering if you've seen some things through your uh, research working with farmers of systems that worked well for the farmers in question. Well, yes, tree fodder does, uh, it can be a complicated process. It can certainly bring benefits, but it does require forethought when you start um, practicing collecting tree hay. We have some farmers here that are beginning to do so. It does require a lot of space. It does require planning. You have to consider harvesting it at the right time. If you harvest it too late in the season, then you risk a lot of leaf drop. And of course, the leaves are the things that you really want. Although the animals will feed on the smaller twigs, it's the leaves that hold the most nutrition. Which brings me to another point. The species of the tree that you're harvesting also matters. 
ash, for example, is a very good tree fodder tree, but the leaves become quite brittle. So some recording in either uh, Sweden or Norway, I can't remember, but the way they used to practice it was that they would cut it and they would dry it as close as possible to where they were going to feed the animals so that that leaf drop was minimised. The other thing is that when you harvest it, if you're harvesting wood that's bigger than the animals are prepared to eat, then you also then have a lot of waste that you have to go back and clear up. So thinking about that is also important. Both sheep and cattle, once they're accustomed to eating uh, browse, will eat the twigs, the branches, up to roughly one centimetre diameter. So if you're harvesting bigger than that, then you're going to be doing a lot of clearing up as well after feeding. Because for me, it, it comes when I think about harvesting, it, it seems more obvious to be cutting branches. And that's what you often see. So what ways are farmers finding to harvest the tips of the branches with very small twigs, as you just recommended? I don't actually know. Um, I, I know of two. I know of two farmers who are currently feeding tree hay. One is a Belgian goat farmer. And I think the goats will actively strip the bark off the bigger branches. So I don't think he's overly bothered about this. The second farmer is a dairy farmer in the UK, and he's just started feeding tree hay this year, this winter we've just had. And he was feeding willow to his dry cows, and he was most interested in offering them willow for medicinal purposes if you like to help them through that late gestation period for for carving and he certainly cut them too big but rather than make life hard for himself he dried it on trailers and when it was completely dry he hired a wood chipper and he just chipped the lot <laughs> and then spread it on top of the cow's food And they ate everything. Now, for dry cows, that is not necessarily a problem. But you, in terms of nutritional content, you wouldn't recommend necessarily that they're, they're feeding on wood of poor nutrition. So it works for him in his situation, but that's probably not something that one would recommend <laughs> generally of course there is the there is another option you can you can uh ensile tree fodder you can you can make silage out of tree fodder this brings its own problems because of course you have to get the all of the air out for uh, the process to work properly chipping works well in this scenario as well but you also have to consider time of year and water content and being careful not to harvest it too dry is key species such as willow can become 
too dry and then they won't ensile. You won't get that fermenting process. In fact, it will just go mouldy. So that's something to consider. But if people are, are comfortable with making grass silage, then moisture content, you know, is is a known and important part of that process. So it's not it's not that difficult. Um, in terms of how it's done, it's not really done on large scale, but a few zoos are actually using this practice to feed and enrich their zoo animals. So they're they're creating tree silage in tubs, recycled, reused tubs every year. It's possible. It's it's absolutely possible. Okay. Um yeah, we've we've talked a lot about um how desirable integrating trees is and how we can do it and what it what it might look like. But I'm sure you've encountered uh some hesitations or some questions from farmers or from um you know farming uh advisors or experts. And today, what do you see as the main obstacles to being able to scale silver pasture and really include trees in, in the way we farm? I see really three main obstacles. The first one is lack of knowledge. We've been quite systematic in our removal of trees from the farmed landscape over the last 80 years or so. Although trees used to be a fundamental part of the farmed landscape, we've very quickly forgotten how to farm with trees, which really leaves farmers in a difficult position. They can see the benefits, but they're not comfortable with getting it wrong, if you like. So there's there's real knowledge needed and we we don't have enough yet. We're all having to relearn these systems. But if you plant trees in the wrong place, it's a lot to get wrong. That said, those farmers who have been practising silvopasture for several decades in this country really say just get on and do it that is their advice to farmers um, and they typically say that the best time to plant trees was 20 years ago the second best time is today so looking for for example financial support from the government they say well the government in the UK changes every four years and they change their mind so just do it <laughs> So I, th I do think, whilst I understand farmers' hesitancy about planting trees, I think they can take some reassurance from those farmers who are already doing it, that they haven't, they don't regret planting those trees and they're very keen that other farmers should plant trees and, and follow their, their practice. <clears throat> I think leading on from that, the second issue is is really the health issue, the safety issue of bringing trees on farm. Because it's important to note that 
that trees require management as much as the grass does, as much as, as the soil does. So just by bringing trees in, I mean, yes, you can you can have some standard trees, but they will require some kind of management, and particularly if you want to go down the tree fodder route. And for many of our farmers, they are now in a situation where they are loan workers, all day, every day, working on their own, and thinking about having a chainsaw um, and maybe working at height are factors that they have to consider, and, and rightly so. So that's the second point. And the third point uh, in the UK is we have a lot of rented land and you have to have the landlord agreeing before the tenant can plant trees. And this can be a, a real problem for farmers. So overall, there are these three issues that we need to consider. I think the first two can be managed learning courses um, and becoming more comfortable with having trees back into the farm landscape where we can we can start to think of that as normal rather than new and innovative actually returning the landscape to the way it once was and um, I should actually say that uh, online there's a fantastic video of a French farmer who grows mulberry trees for tree fodder and he pollards them and his harvest every year he clearly lives in a in a place where where mulberry trees go very well and he harvests multiple tons of mulberry leaves every year for his beef cattle they are they're quite an extraordinary sight one last question i wanted to ask is um, you know, things to be aware of in, in the design of, I'm thinking, you know, putting trees in the wrong place or not enough of them could have detrimental impacts. Thinking of maybe uh, not enough trees where all the, all the livestock uh, concentrates on creating problems of, uh, you know, um, compaction and concentrating fertility in one area. So what would your advice be in terms of, um, yeah, preventing that. Oh, more trees. It's as simple as that. You know, this is a, this is a valued resource that the animals are using because they need to use it. So getting more trees will, will take the pressure off that part of the landscape. Mm. There is one other thing to think about. We talked at the beginning of the, um, conversation about water management <laughs> and one thing to consider is if you have land that is that has drainage so the land has been drained then you do have to think about the trees seeking out those drains for the water supply and, and blocking them up now there is an ongoing discussion here about if the trees are going for the water and they can manage the water then the drains are less important and of less value but there are certain species of trees which includes willow and they actively seek out water so if you have if you have drainage on your land then thinking about where they are and the types of trees that you're planting can be 
um, a useful exercise to avoid your drains not working anymore or being blocked by willow roots. I think maybe I'll just finish on one thing. It's it's not so much about the livestock, but it is about the number of trees. Uh, I want to consider this in terms of flies. So we know that a few trees brings in more flies, which is a problem for the livestock. But if you bring in more trees, you do bring in the flies, but you also bring in the predators of those flies. So you're creating a better biodiverse system. And a piece of research has shown that although there are more flies in the silvopasture system, because of the predators, when you take head counts of head flies, there are 40% fewer in the silvopasture system than on open pasture. And this is really a key point to make because you're, you're rebuilding biodiversity. You're rebuilding these systems. So yes, those pests are there, but the predators are there to manage those populations. And alongside this, we know that silvopasture systems have more dung beetles, more species of dung beetles, and each of these beetles is more active. So the muck that's being deposited is getting into the ground much quicker. So those nutrients are being captured. So really, yes, my main interest is the livestock. But in general, trees bring a great deal more benefits than that. What a beautiful conclusion. Thank you so much. And um, thanks again for taking the time to share all this uh, amazing knowledge with us. And I hope we will get you back on the podcast one day for uh, round two, because there's so many more things to discuss with you. So much more to learn in the meantime. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thanks for listening and making it to the end. I'll post all the relevant links just below the episode. Uh, don't forget to reach out to us for any suggestions on future guests or on some questions that you'd like us to explore through the podcast. 